think I'm a fool? I didn't think so. I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like this before. I think you just said something. Think, 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 think. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, and there's no fire delightful. Now, in all seriousness, Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him greatly. It's that time again, time to get you to think through your Bible in a worldview-oriented manner, which means, hi, I'm here to tell you that God promises God's promises matter more than anything. And you're going, hey, that's what you did for First Chronicles. Yeah. And we're going to do it again for Second Chronicles. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we are going to try and endeavor. We are endeavoring today. You ready? So we're not a space shuttle. I think that was one of the names of the space shuttle. Wasn't, wasn't one of them endeavor? I think it was. We are going to endeavor to get through the entirety of 36 chapters of 2 Chronicles. And you're like, do we going to what? And the reason we're going to do that is, <clears throat> excuse me, because so much of it is stuff we covered in Kings. Because I want, what I want you to do, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. I want to actually see the ebb and the flow with Israel. Now, warnings here, just a couple. Chronicles, remember, is the royal... Uh, the royal almanac of kings of, of Judah, not Israel, Judah. Solomon is the last of the United Kingdom kings. So David and Solomon are rulers over Israel as a whole with all the tribes. After Solomon, as we saw when we went through kings, we get the split with Rehoboam. And you have Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north, and then the never the two shall be joined ever, ever again. And the reason that becomes an issue is the chronicler doesn't want to cover all the gory details. Therefore, they're not in there. They're just not there. There's less of a rebuke of Solomon in Chronicles as there is in Kings. There's less, a re- a less of a rebuke of the wicked kings of Judah, even though the mark that they are wicked and how they were wicked and what that did is there. So, by the way, the reason for the song at the beginning, as you can hear it now, hopefully it doesn't pick up too badly on the, uh, on the recording here, is watching the storms roll through. It is basically dark outside, even though it's the middle of the day. So hopefully I don't blow away and, you know, the roof doesn't fly off. This is the Midwest, but we'll see what happens. All right, diving right in. Solomon is secure. He is king. Chapter 1 is everything you want. It's Solomon worshiping. It's Solomon praying for wisdom. Solomon said to God, You have dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and have made me king in his place. Now, O Lord God, you, oh, now, O Lord God, your promise to my father is fulfilled. You have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of yours? Ding, 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 ding. It is God who is preserving. It is God who is accomplishing. It is God who is faithful. If you wish to be those things, you must walk in his ways, not your own. God likes this prayer. God blesses this prayer and gives him all the stuff he didn't ask for as well. Now remember, the great regret from David was, if you can call it a regret, is he doesn't get to build the temple, but he went to a lot of work to make preparation for the temple. So chapter 2. Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads and 80,000 men to quarry stone in the mountains and 3,600 to supervise them. We are 
<coughs> excuse me, drafting into service. We are setting up for the work of the temple. You've got Hiram of Tyre assisting. You've got chapter 3 where the construction begins. In chapter 4, you have the furnishings put together. You have more testimony to Hiram's work. And then in chapter 5, you have the temple being completed. Solomon assembled to Jerusalem the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' households, of the sons of Israel, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. I'm sorry, which is Zion. All the men of Israel assembled themselves to the king at the feast, that is, in the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. They brought up the ark and the tent of meeting, and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, the Levitical priests, brought them up. This is good. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Hernan, Jeduthun, Jedithan, I don't know, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison when the trumpets and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they pray, praised the Lord, saying, He indeed is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, <coughs> excuse me, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud of the the cloud of the of, uh, the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. In other words, what was promised is God has set a city, God has built a house, God has established Himself, and He is dwelling there amongst His people, secure in the land. Why are they secure in the land? Because the God who saved them from Israel, or from Egypt, the God who sanctified them in the wilderness, the God who has preserved them thus far, has faithfully now accomplished all that he has promised. And he has done this because the people have, for the most part, followed faithfully. We talked about this as the differentiation between David and Saul. Is David's repentance before God, recognizing it is God upon whom he is dependent, not the other way around. Solomon is a king for peace. Solomon can do this. I mean, let's be honest. Go to war for a couple decades. How much stuff you build? Exactly, nothing. Because I don't have time. I don't have money. I don't have resources. I don't have manpower. Solomon is able to do this because God has granted the people peace. God has granted the people peace because, wait for it, he has promised to because David was faithful. David was the king after God's own heart, the repentant king who leaned upon the Lord, trusted in him, and returned to him with all of his heart when there was iniquity found within him. This matters. So, chapter 6 and 7 give you the prayers of Solomon, the worship that is offered. We're going to gloss right over chapter, uh, verse 14 in chapter 7 because that's not for you, Christian. That's for Israel. You don't have a land and a nation, but that's okay. Chapter 8, the accomplishments of Solomon. Chapter 9, the visit by the Queen of Sheba, Solomon's wealth, all the stuff that he's got, and then he dies. And Rehoboam steps in. Now, we know Rehoboam is dumb. He almost dies. You can read it at the end of the chapter. All Israel departed for their, for, uh, for their tents. But as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Then King Rehoboam sent Hadoram, who was over the forced labor, and the sons of Israel stoned him to death. And King Rehoboam made haste to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Dun, da, da, da. Rehoboam is not going to end well because he was a nitwit and splits the kingdom, basically. So, 
Rehoboam builds. Rehoboam has a family. You're going to love this. Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, more than all his other wives and concubines, for he had taken 18 wives and 60 concubines. Lightweight, his his dad had a thousand chicks, but, you know, apparently he couldn't pull that off. Can't blame him. So he settled for 88. (sighs) He fathered 28 sons and 60 daughters. Yowzers, people. Yowzers. I just point that out because when a family goes bad and a family has been this blessed by God, they are numerous. What happens to that numerosity, if that's a word? That's right, children. It spreads, and it metastasizes like a cancer. So when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord, and it came about in King Rehoboam's fifth year, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He captures the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. So we have problems. Why? Because we've been faithless. David was faithful. While Solomon was faithful, the kingdom was blessed. Solomon's king, uh, Solomon's reign ends in judgment, not in his lifetime because of the work of David. So God honors the promise that he has made to David in the flesh that Solomon will reign and rule. But the descendants of Solomon won't because of their faithlessness because of Solomon's faithlessness. So, let me see, i got to get my chart here. Rehoboam dies, we get Abijah. I'm not going to try to give you all the years and things. The one advantage of this is we don't have to worry about overlap here. There is civil war with Israel. Sometimes this goes well, sometimes this goes badly. You eventually move on to Asa. Asa, Asa, however you want to say it, I don't care. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. Go team! For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. This is good. What's the result of this? Because God is preserving. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men. Whoa. 300 chariots. That's just, we're going we're gonna to overwhelm you here. It's the North Korea thought, idea here. And he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and he drew up in a battle formation in the valley of Zephathah at, Ma- at Marashah. Then Asa called to the Lord his God, you should be jumping up and down cheering right now, and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Why is Rehoboam having trouble? Because he's walking away from God. Why is Abijah having trouble? Because he's walking away from God. Why are, the, why are these descendants having trouble? Because Solomon walked away from God. Why is Asa having success? Because Asa has walked with God. Then the prophet shows up and be like, um, chapter 15, you may want to watch yourself. So when Asa heard the words of the prophet, which Azariah, the son of Obed, the prophet spoke, he took courage, removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured from the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord. This is good. This is very good. Now, in the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going up or coming out, coming into Asa, king of Judah. Now, if you're Asa, what should you do? You should be trusting in the Lord, going into battle, trusting in his provision that he will accomplish this. 
So Asab brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord in the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. And he has, uh, has Ben-Hadad break the treaty with Baasha and align with him. This is a problem. This is not being responsible to God, the creator. This is not trusting him to preserve the people. This is not trusting him to save you. This is trusting in the world. <clears throat> At that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. See, this is the reminder, Christian. This is the worldview. The world doesn't stop. It doesn't slow down. It doesn't blink. It doesn't veer to the left or to the right. It just keeps chugging along. And what the world wants to do is find anything but godliness. A pagan world system doesn't want godliness. It wants something else. How do we combat that? Renew your mind. Focus your eyes upon Christ. This is your Romans 12 and your Hebrews 12. How do I do that? I remember from whom all things come, that God is creator. I remember it is he that upholds all these things by the word of his power. He is the one preserving me. Now you say, but he hasn't wiped out my enemies. He hasn't wiped out evil. You're right. He is preserving them in the here and now, but he is preserving them unto judgment unless they repent, in which case he will have preserved them in spite of themselves so that he may demonstrate his glory and grace in saving them. Always remember, he is preserving me in the here and now, and if he chooses not to, he will, because of his great work, preserve me in eternity. Why? Because he's my savior, and he is their judge. So I do not have to fear their evil because God will deal with it, and he will be faithful to all the promises that he has made, and he will accomplish precisely all the promises that he has brought that he has promised to bring about because he is the one who accomplishes all things and he will redeem me from the curse because he will ultimately sanctify me as he is carrying me along and sanctifying me now see there's all of your foundations building up a hard firm ground that you can stand upon so that when the world comes along you can say no that's a lie did god really say yes yes he did now sit down and shut up and listen <laughs> That's supposed to be our answer. The fact that it's not means that we have drifted into the wrong direction. We are following after the wrong thing. Here becomes the example. So after Asah, we get Jehoshaphat. Great name. Great name here, Jehoshaphat. The Lord was, excuse me, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father, Dave, father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals. So this is good. He is therefore going to be blessed and have success. In the way Asah was, but Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor, and he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. Oh! See, this is what happens if you allow a little bitty foothold. And this is a little bitty foothold in the grand scheme of things. You'd be like, I'm not letting a daughter of Ahab come between me and God. You would not be the first person to let a pretty young thing come between you and God. Happens all the time. Happens to the Israelites when they go into the land. Happens to the Israelites when they're in the land. Happens to the Israelites when they're banished from the land. Happens to the kings. Happens to Solomon. Happened to David. I mean, this was David's great failing. Is the things of the world, the pleasures of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, they can be a consuming fire. God is supposed to be a consuming fire for us. So, you get some judgment. 
You get Jehu raised up to take out Ahab. He almost takes out Jehoshaphat at the same time. That's why in chapter 19, there is rebuke from Jehu and the prophets. So what do you get? He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He said, consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. In other words, Ahab is not the creator. Jehoshaphat is not the creator. Jehu is not the creator. God, Yahweh, Sabaoth is creator. And when you render judgment, you are not rendering judgment for people. You are rendering judgment for God. Therefore, be careful how you judge. What ends up happening? Invasion comes. The multitude comes out of Aram. They are almost overwhelmed. What do you get? Prayer from Jehoshaphat. Prayer from the people. In the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel. I'm sorry, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benanah, the son of Jael, the son of Matanah, the son of the Levite, the son of Asaph. And he said, listen, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Notice similar language, the great multitude of Ethiopia and Lubim, the great multitude against Asa, who conquers? God conquers. What happens? The enemies destroy themselves. Why? Because God destroyed them. God worked. God moved. And so what's the response? After this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel. Oh! He acted wickedly in doing so. There you go. And those, therefore, those plans are, thwart, are thwarted. So you get to Jehoram, punchline here. Jehoram had taken over the kingdom of his father and made himself secure. He killed all his brothers with the sword and some of the rulers of Israel also. Yeah, that's probably not good. So what do you get? You say you want a revolution, yeah, you know. In his days, Edom revolted against the rule of Judah and set up a king over themselves. You get trouble. Why? Because we have sin reigning. Go from Jehoram, you get Ahaziah. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Oops. So it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah, and he killed them. He sought Ahaziah, and they caught him while he was hiding in Samaria. They brought him to Jehu, put him to death, and buried him. That's swift judgment. And again, I apologize if this is a little awkward in the background. It is pouring down rain. I mean, pouring. Woo, thunder. So I don't know if the uh, noise gate will catch all of this or if you have to hear it, and I apologize if this is just terrible. We'll try to get this as cleaned up as I can when I, when I go to get it uh, set up. So what ends up happening? Athaliah takes over. There we go. It starts to slow down a little. She's like evil, evil, evil. And so Jehoiada the priest sets aside Joash and spares him, and we get Joash. Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they would be the Lord's people. That's how this is supposed to work, Israel, or in this case, Judah. And again, have you noticed the pattern? Federal headship on display here, which is not one of our foundations, I'll admit, but it's a good time to talk some theology. There are faithful and faithless people in Israel, regardless of who the king is, regardless. And yet, what do you see? You see God working with the people in what way? Through the king. Just as all fallen Adam, all who believed are saved through Christ. Israel is built up, or in this case, Judah is built up based on the faithfulness of her king. Judah is torn down based on the faithlessness of 
her king. These things matter, always have, always will. When we have a king who's trusting in God, walking in his ways, we have what? We have success. We have blessings. This is what Deuteronomy was all about. When the king is not walking away, we have what? We have failures. There's a lesson here. Even a good king, Asa, Jehoshaphat, when they walk away and fall into sin, it's when they no longer acknowledge that sin and they confirm themselves in it that you see what? You see corruption. This is what separated David from all of these other kings. When these kings sin, they don't acknowledge. They don't repent and return to God, write great psalms of repentance. They stick with it. They stubbornly walk in their pride and what ends up happening. Bad things, man, bad things. So we get Joash. He does well. We're repairing the temple, but the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, thus God has said, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. See, even though Joash is good, even Jehoiada is good, we have the leadership good, the most of the people are not good. So what do you do? You get the prophet now able to focus on the right thing. You get the prophet able to focus on the people. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. This is not good. This is very much not good. So what happens? Defeat at the hands of Aram. You lose the next battle. You get to Amaziah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with his whole heart. Therefore, what do you get? You get victory in battle, rebuke for his idolatry, and defeat in battle. You get a mixed bag. Why? Because he's a mixed bag. And you're sitting there at home saying, but I'm a mixed bag. Dude, get in line. I, myself, am a mixed bag. Some days I do great. Some days I do poorly. The difference is the days I do poorly and the times I find myself in sin, I recognize that God is my Savior and that in the midst of my iniquity, he has preserved me so that I may return to him and walk in the newness of life, that I may turn from this sin and instruct others on the way that they should not go because I have seen the folly of my flesh and I have trusted in the work of God to redeem it. See the difference here? That's what's missing from these kings. It's not a fully formed worldview trusting in God. It is a partial, halfway trusting. <clears throat> a brokenness that does not believe that it is God who overcomes these things. So what do you get? You get Uzziah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Exactly. So you get victory. Then what happens? When he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. For he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. See, again, it's constant. Even the good ones aren't good. All the bad ones are bad, but not all of the good ones are good. So now what? Jotham. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he did not enter the temple of the Lord, but the people continued acting corruptly. Notice again, we get a couple of good kings in a row. What can we do? We can focus on the people. We can see the problem. Israel is supposed to be a holy people unto the Lord. That starts with a holy leader unto the Lord. Bad leadership, bad people. Even with good leadership, you might have bad people, but at least then we have something pulling in the right direction. This is the issue going on here. Here's the other fun part. If you're a faithful Israelite, and the king is eh, and the people around you are whoa bad, what should you do? You should trust that God has placed you in this time, that God has preserved you, 
in the midst of this sin and judgment, that God will save you out of the midst of it because that is what he has promised to his people. And therefore, you can trust that he can judge your neighbor while redeeming you because he will accomplish all that he has promised. So you get Ahaz. He's 20 when he becomes king, and he reigns 16 years, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and he made molten images for the Baals. Yay. Good job. So what happens? Aram is defeated. Assyria shows up. And in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. See? Because he doesn't trust God to preserve him. So now what? Well, we can't have Assyria destroy Israel. We can't because the Assyrians would, or I'm sorry, we can't have the Assyrians destroy Judah. They can destroy Israel because Israel doesn't have the Davidic line. Judah does. We need that Davidic line to succeed. We need that Davidic line to hold on. Therefore, we can't have the Assyrians who destroy lineage, who destroy peoples as distinct. We can't have them conquer Judah because then the promises of Genesis 49 would be null. The promise of 2 Samuel 7 would be null. We would lose all of those things. And since we know God is precise in all that he is accomplishing and that he is long-suffering in all that he is doing, we know that's not going to happen. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square. So we get reformation. We get restoration of worship. We get chapter 30. We get the Passover. When was the last time we mentioned the Passover? The celebration of God accomplishing his promises, <clears throat> being faithful to his people and redeeming them in the midst of their enemy. When was the last time we talked about any of that for Israel? Chapter 31, idolatry is done. We get more and more restoration, but we get Hezekiah worried about his life. Not focused on eternity, but focused on the here and now. So he's granted an extra 15 years. And then what do you have? You have invasion. You have redemption by God, but you still have invasion. You have problems. Now, why do I mention those 15 years? Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Trust in God to accomplish his plans. Trust in God to be precise, and you don't worry about those last 15 years. You don't have this kid. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Manasseh, becoming more and more cosmopolitan, doesn't just go into the sin of the Canaanites, but into the sin of the nations that are around him. Yeah, that's no good. Ammon's really bad. According to uh, tradition and history, he's the one who kills Isaiah by pressing him between two boards and sawing him in half. How lovely. So Ammon, Ammon, he did evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done, and Ammon sacrificed to all the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, and he served them. What could go wrong? Other than everything, but it's not time yet. So what do you get next? Josiah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Yay! So what's Josiah going to do? We're going to repair the temple. We're going to read the book of the law as it's been laying around collecting dust. We're going to heed the prophets. We're going to celebrate the good work that God has done. We're going to rejoice and covenant with him. We're again going to observe the past. 
Passover. So we forgot about it for the entire reign of Manasseh and Ammon. So in other words, at best, we haven't done Passover in... Let me look at my list. 695 to 640. You had done Passover in 55 years, you know, at best, probably longer than that. What could go wrong here, folks? Exactly. Everything. So again, you're returning to right worship. Punchline. After all of this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war, and God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me, so that he will not destroy you. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him, nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God. God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. The archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. That's the end of Josiah. Why? Because rather than just continue on, look, how does he know Nico's speaking the words of God? He doesn't know that. Why should he have listened? Not because he thought Nico spoke from God, but because he's got no dog in this fight. Go let Egypt and Babylon kill each other. I don't care. God will preserve his people. God will protect his land. God will uphold his people and accomplish his purposes. You need to worry about the people that God has placed. Now, this is where you get your rapid-fire oi, the last chapter. You're going to go from Josiah to Jehoahaz. He's going to get, you know, a year tops. And then you're going to get Jehoiakim. You're going to start to get your deportations. Uh, Egypt is finally defeated during his reign. His reign ends in a second deportation of Israel. You get Jehoiakim. He's wiped out quickly. You get Zedekiah, who's going to do the final rebellion, and that's going to get you to the destruction of the temple in 586. Now, what I like is, in our English Bibles, this is the middle of the Old Testament. If you're a faithful Jew, though, your, your Tanakh ends with Second Chronicles. Here's why. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is way down the line. This is 5, what, 517, something like that? In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given to me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Reason why the Tanakh ends there is because it's a message of hope, a message of trust and faith in Yahweh to accomplish what he has promised and what he has done. It's a reminder of our foundations on how we live in this world, that no matter how bad things may be now, God is still at work. No matter how long it may have been, God will accomplish his promises. He will do all of these things. Told you we'd get through Second Chronicles. So what have we learned here in the midst of it? God has not forgotten his work. God will accomplish all that he has promised, and God's schedule is beyond our understanding. We may have wanted a lot more judgment a lot sooner, but we're not God. We don't get to make that call. We may have wanted a lot more grace for a lot longer, but we're not God. We don't get to make that call. Instead, the call we get to make is, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Choose for yourself this day how you will react to your sin. Choose for yourself this day what you want your life to be about. Christian, understand that it is God who is at work, has been at work, and will be at work. It is he who upholds you, and that upholding is not meant to be focused on here. 
It's not about this world. It's about his kingdom. It's about the world to come, the eternal value where sin is put to death. Evil is cast aside, and we stand gloriously with God. That's the focus. Keep the focus there. Everything else lines itself up perfectly. So there you go, Second Chronicles. You have finished the kingdom years. We will continue to have some fun with, his, with the uh, historical books. So until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.